Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to The Shapes of Stories, a podcast with me, Lawrence Prestige, as your host. Stories come in all shapes and sizes, whether it be from our favourite books, our life experiences, or the day-to-day challenges and issues we face in the world today. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shapes of Stories, and yeah, really interesting episode for you guys today, as my guest is Tim Haynes, and um, Tim Haynes is a, you know, I guess he's most known for his um, work creating the show Walking with Dinosaurs, which I was a big fan of when I was... um, when I was a kid, I remember getting the books, the magazines and watching the TV shows. And he's gone on to do other things as well, walking with beasts and walking with monsters. And uh, yeah, it was really interesting talking to Tim. He's got so much knowledge and I was just kind of in awe of that knowledge, to be honest. And um, yeah, we, we covered a lot of things, not only, you know, walking with dinosaurs, but we talked about different creatures and some of the the beasts that we have in the world now, I guess. And some of the, um, you know, we just... we we t- covered quite a lot of <laughs> intense stuff really we talked about covid and um the future of humanity extinction and um yeah we we covered a lot of things and it's a really interesting episode so be sure to check out tim's stuff and be sure to um check us out on social media you can follow us on twitter at shapes of stories and you can follow me on my instagram under prestige books and you can follow us on our facebook pages um the shapes of stories and my page lawrence prestige um but yeah guys really interesting episode to bring you here with tim haynes and um yeah can't wait to share the episode with you so here he is my chat with tim haynes So I guess first of all, Tim, how has this last year been for you? This isn't a whole year, this COVID year. You've been doing okay? Yes. No, I mean, it's it's been sort of a little unreal, but not unpleasant from our point of view, because my um, I have five children and they're just at the point where they're leaving home. And suddenly okay. they all didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, we actually were locked down with nine people for about three or four months. Oh, wow. um, did you have to do homeschooling or was that yeah, they all kind of we have one who was homeschooling and one who was taking his degree finals and then okay. three with their partners who were working from home so it was quite a full house um but no it's it, in that respect it's been fine from a work point of view it's been an absolute pain in the ass um yeah. I, in in many ways i'm very glad i wasn't in production when it all hit because people i know who are it's just been so difficult and so yeah. complicated to take account of COVID while trying to shoot love scenes and <laughs> and all the other stuff because uh, television is about people and you know people meeting people and shaking hands and hugging and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so, yeah. Were, were there things sort of projects that you had ongoing that have kind of I guess been affected by COVID or sort of been put back on the shelf or? Very, very much so. A lot of decisions were put off. It's all changing now, but a lot of decisions were kind of delayed. And so, yes, a number of projects, which I would say for about six months just didn't move at all. Um, Mm -hmm. So, but it's all beginning to change. Um, 
Yeah. And also being international, that's complicated. I mean, one particular show, show I had, an immersive interactive show, uh, obviously, uh, where you're meant to shuffle groups of 20 or 40 people around every eight minutes, you know, that was not going to happen. Yeah. And so that's been sitting in a shed for a year, but it's looking to move abroad. And of course, every single country is in a different state. So it's quite complex. Um, yeah. I'm afraid it's just sitting in that warehouse at the moment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how, how many years ago was it that Walking with Dinosaurs, I suppose, hit the screen? It's been... Well, it went out in this country in October 99. Yeah, a long, long it, time it, ago. <laughs> yeah, it makes me feel old because I mean, I obviously love that show. But like, were you um, were you always into like sort of, I guess dinosaurs as a child? Was that sort of your thing as a kid? Yes, I was when I um, yeah. I was born near a place called Tunbridge Wells, and they had an old museum that was full of Victorian dolls and strange artifacts. But there was a footprint of an iguanodon there, and I thought that was the most exciting thing in the whole museum. Um, and yeah, I loved them until about 12 or 13 when I have to say other interests took over and I forgot about them. Uh, but being a science journalist, which I was for a long time, um, you know there are some touchstone subjects which just have a very broad appeal. And there is something astonishingly romantic and um, spectacular about dinosaurs. That, reaches all generations really although they're often seen as a children's interest and a children's passion um they have some extraordinarily important lessons to teach us and they are people who profess not to be interested just saying they're not interested in where we came from which is a bit of a dumb thing to say yeah yeah no absolutely i mean because obviously you studied zoology didn't you is that what you yeah actually i specialized in entomology which was not going in the same direction um yeah, I, I, I loved, I mean, I have to say, probably when I was about 15 or 16, I used to watch this person called David Attenborough on television, I think. Oh, I'd like to do his job. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. Let me check out that name again, David Attenborough. No, <laughs> yeah, really, it's interesting. Um, no, he, um, so yes, the Jacques Cousteau, David Attenborough films, I liked all that. And that's actually what was more influential than dinosaurs in deciding to go into science journalism. Uh, but you couldn't just go straight into the natural history um, unit in Bristol. It was back then; it was extremely successful and popular, and it still is now. It's generating a huge amount of programming. Um, but I think that I thought that was an exciting thing to do. I think, like a lot of people, young teenagers or whatever, you don't have a depth of knowledge about the working world, so. Everyone says, what do you want to do? So you just sort of make it up. And <laughs> I like those programs, so I want to do that. Um, and that sort of was what sent me off to do zoology. Um, yeah. Obviously, once you get closer to it, you know there's a huge range of jobs. But I, th- I always knew I wasn't cut out to be a scientist. The research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you. Did that sort of? I guess naturally you'd think you're going to go down the scientist route. But like, was the sort of television media aspect of it more appealing to you? I think I was too much of a show off. Um, <laughs> I, I think when I learned stuff, I thought, hey, you know, isn't it amazing how these tree slugs mate or whatever? <laughs> you go like to tell people about it, which is not what scientists do. They find out more and they have patience and they have, they're methodical and lots of things that I knew I wasn't particularly good at. So although I love the subject, um, I don't think I would have made a good scientist. Um, 
but I did like communicating it, and I think that's probably what led to me becoming a journalist in the end, uh, which was what I did after doing science at um, university and a medical journalist. And that, I mean, although things are different now, because it's like you've got podcasts and everything, there are so many ways now you can reach people. Um, back when I came out, which was the early 80s, the only, the, you, the only way you were ever going to communicate with a lot of people is through these um, very specific channels. So you worked for a newspaper, you worked for radio, or you worked for TV, or you wrote a book, and there wasn't much else you could do. Um, so I got onto a newspaper, and it was a fantastic training because it forced you to write and write and write and write, which is not what anyone's used to. And therefore, articulate yourself clearly. And that's what I did for a while. And that, that was great training for what came after. So I'm glad I didn't go straight into television because I wouldn't have had that. Yeah. And I mean, how did the idea of walking from dinosaurs come about? How did it all sort of emerge for you? Because obviously it was a phenomenon. It was a huge success when you know, it was in its sort of prime days, heydays of the, on television. I mean, how did the sort of concept of it all come about? Well, um, I think it was 95 Jurassic Park came out. And for someone inter interested in visual media, um, whatever you think of the film, whatever you think of the writing, the technical achievement, I, I used to love Ray Harryhausen films and stuff like that. And you'd watch cartoons about dinosaurs and I liked paleo art, which still remains a very, very interesting area of work. But um, suddenly looking at uh, an image of a, of a made up creature, which you could not, your eyes could not deny, was a real leap forward in terms of visual technology. And seeing those dinosaurs bouncing about, I thought, that is amazing, that's extraordinary. Um, and uh, being a documentary maker, I was working for Horizon at the time, uh, making uh, sort of very serious science shows. I just thought, this is perfect for um, recreating the past in a kind of, I'd say a serious way, in other words, a scientifically based way. I don't, not, I wanted to lecture people, but pictures tell a thousand stories. And so I thought if you could just show people how a T-Rex moves about, that would be amazing. And I had an image in my mind of a little um, raptor catching butterflies in the Cretaceous sunset. And I thought, you know, this could be beautiful. Um, unfortunately, when I investigated the cost and everything, I realized it was ridiculous uh, but I was very very fortunate to bump into a man called Mike Milne who worked for a company called Framestore which is a post-production house in London who were always very good they're now absolutely world-class but back then they were kind of looking for um, I think they were very keen to back a project which showed off their skills um, often they can do post-production houses can do wonderful work for films and the film bombs, <laughs> and, and was, no one cares. And they, they, they're busy saying, but look at our work, it was great. The great thing about Walking with Dinosaurs, it really showed off what they could do. And they, mm -hmm. they really bent over backwards to generate a huge amount of uh, material to fill up these programs. And whereas when I th first thought of the idea, I thought, well, if we've got five minutes of dinosaurs and then the rest is plants and insects, or whatever, that, that'll be all right. People will still go with it. In the end, they produced as much as I wanted, and it was an uh, absolute joy. Um, yeah. 
Especially going around, actually, the, the part of it which was surprising was going around and filming where the vegetation, there was still this um, ancient vegetation sitting about. And I've often thought if you wanted to do a cruise ship <laughs> tour, you could take people around the South Pacific and they'd visit all these fantastic places. And uh, it's very calming sitting, shooting in these sort of old forests and things like that, especially when you have to wait for the sun to come out because everyone's just twiddling their thumbs and reading books and you're waiting to take the shot. There's no stress. Um, that yeah. was a fun part of it. Yeah, and you've done some pretty interactive stuff as well. Like, is it the um, uh, obviously walking with dinosaurs, but with the uh, is it walking with beasts or the sort of interactive virtual thing where people could physically be there? The show. Yeah, no. We, we, well, walking with beasts and walking with monsters. Once I made dinosaurs, I was very keen to do the whole of life. So, and mm -hmm. beasts, they commissioned straight away because it had mammoths and saber tooth. So they thought that was great. It took me a long, long time to push through monsters, which was. <laughs> and you know, Demetrion just doesn't do it for them. Um, but we managed to get that one made. Uh, there are a lot of spin-off and th things, some of which I was involved with, some of which I weren't. The stage play, which um, was great to be involved with, I consulted on that, and they were they had all sorts of ideas about having little children drawing pictures in books, and I thought, no, just show them these dinosaurs. That's it's a it's a parade of amazing animals and their technology for these giant maquettes, the giant puppets essentially yeah. was great. Um, but then when VR came along, lots of people did do that. I wasn't involved in a VR project on walking with dinosaurs and the BBC, because in the end it belonged to the BBC, not me. Um, they, they made Planet Dinosaur or something, various other things. There, it was a shame. There was a lot of material that came out immediately afterwards, which was a little bit visually substandard. And so the, the, the whole area got swamped with kind of uh, CG dinosaurs. Um, but when VR came along, I, uh, a friend of mine worked on a thing about the Cambrian Sea, um, which was a very interesting idea. You dive into the sea and you see all these creatures around you. Um, but VR, it, that was for a channel on Sky or whatever, and VR never took off in that way. Um, and that's why I made this, this, this sort of immersive theatre thing where at least you can add a sense of storytelling to it. So you have to, you have to go into a machine and travel back in time, and, and then you ride across a plane to a place where she's surrounded by windows. And so you have a story that's led you to that place rather than just popping on your VR glasses. And therefore it feels more immersive. And the other thing that with VR, of course, it's a very lonely thing to do. And especially if you've got groups of children, um, going inside, we had this lookout which had windows, 3D windows around it. So you could look out onto all these dinosaurs. The children excite each other about what's going on. And that's nothing, you can't do that with VR. And I think it's a bit like the excitement you get when you go to a film and all watch it together as opposed to watching the film at home. And so I could see that all these things help make the experience a little bit more affecting. And I think that um, that emotional connection is true for everything, whether it's a serious documentary or a great drama or whatever. I was lucky with Walking With Dinosaurs. We did have stories, 
we I'd looked at all the natural history programs and I stole the best stories from them. The old guy trying to mate for the last time and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. But it led on top of that, because it was so novel to people, they really did feel emotionally about it. They, you know, it felt slightly magical and otherworldly. But the more of these were made, the, the less that, that it had that impact. So you couldn't repeat that trick again easily. But I have seen, and uh, there, there are a lot of shows now where the directors are very good at crafting the, the beauty of what you're watching. And I'd say if you compared Planet Earth 2, for instance, to um, Life on Earth or anything like that, you know, uh, or Trials of Life, those were very didactic, le illustrated lectures with great footage, but essentially you sat down in front of the TV and learned. Now you watch these shows, they are beautiful to start off with, and they tell stories which are very evocative. Um, and so when the poor little iguana tries to escape the race of snakes in Galapagos, you know, you're, they're cutting it. They're cheating like mad, but they're cutting it for every emotional beat they can get. Um, and I think you have to do that because so many people now are quite agnostic about what they're watching. Um, it needs to reach them and it needs to grab them. Um, yeah. And in, in natural history and in dinosaurs, ostensibly there's there should be nothing that you're emotionally connected to there but you pull all sorts of tricks to draw people in yeah it's 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 amazing really isn't it what um those impressions i guess have like even from watching walking with dinosaurs reading the books jurassic park whatever it was even now i'm still fascinated by t-rexes and just the fact that their head's so big and their hat that even as a kid and their arms just just so small i think that must be the i'm trying to think of any other sort of creature that has to deal with that has like a huge head and the small well, I have a small stuff. confession. The the head on our, the walking with dinosaurs T Rex was too big. Um, <laughs> the, um, I in those days you you had to build a maquette, um, and then scan that into the computer, and then they animated that. Nowadays, it's all done in the computer, and the bloody sculptor made the body, uh, the whole body and head. And when they sent it to be scanned, the French store said, I'm sorry, the head's too small for us to get the detail we need. And he'd gone off to Australia. So he then sculpted the head in Australia and sent it over. And it was the wrong size. <laughs> so they had to kind of squeeze it in on its neck. <laughs> so it, it, he has got a very boxy head. But going back to your point, he does have small arms. Although these are stronger than you or I, these are they're quite powerful arms given the size of the creature. But then it makes perfect sense. He was a killing machine on two legs. And if you think about birds, two-legged birds, ostriches, flightless birds, they're quite happy and we're quite used to them wandering around using their head. They don't pick anything up, they don't use any arms. Um, and he wanted to make his head as big and as powerful as possible with big teeth and big muscles. But of course, you always have to balance yourself on the, over the legs. Um, so yeah, you've got a tail, you've got the head. Why have two great big arms hanging out the front when you don't need them? So essentially he was well on the way to getting rid of his arms. Um, you, I don't know if you remember a little one called Mononychus, which appeared in one of the Nigel Marvin shows we made. And it just had two little pointy things. They were just like two single claws. And 
it's because they're bird-like. They are advancing to a point where they can run around on their legs and just grab stuff with their mouth, and they don't really need to manipulate it with arms. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, what do you think, I guess, I suppose, what we have sort of currently in, in the world are the, are the most sort of fierce the fiercest beasts we have on the planet right now because i mean i've seen some like horrific footage of bears and people uh, sort of think winnie the winnie, winnie the pooh cuddly yeah. love bears but they are ter- they are terrifying <laughs> <laughs> bears they are they're sort of they're they're like a swiss army knife of predator they they'll just smashy crush anything um and yeah. yes it's very they're they're awesome beasts and there used to be bigger bears as well which is even more frightening um, I think what I think about now, which I think is interesting, we, we, we are in the middle of this extinction event. And one of the shames is that the first thing that went, which always goes, which was before our time, was all the mega beasts. A lot of the apex predators that we should be sharing the world with have gone. And there are only a few left. So you go to Africa and you still have some larger beasts. Um, but still, we have enormous diversity here. The, every time there's an extinction event, life always roars back um, more diverse. And that's happened again and again and again. And the present world we've got, where the continents are straddling nicely north-south, uh, they're not clumped around the equator, where the cold at the top and the bottom drives ocean currents, so there's a huge depth of oxygen in the oceans, um, means that the variety of life in this world is the, would be the envy of the dinosaurs. You know, they never saw anything like this. They were in this hot, stable world where, yes, they got very big, but they never had what we would, what we would call di- the, the richness of diversity that we have now. Now, unfortunately, humans are busy knocking that out, but, um, <laughs> but it will all, whatever we do, uh, whatever our story ends up, yeah, everything will roar back and it, it, inwards afterwards and there'll be great beasts after we're gone. It's just at the moment, we are the sort of driving extinction event. Yeah, and I, I suppose what do you see as the most likely cause of our own demise, I suppose? Like, do you think, it, oh, obviously it's interesting we're sort of living in a world where a virus can just have us all on, sort of the, bring the whole world on pause, or do we need to be taking climate change more seriously? I mean, what do you see as like the biggest threat that we do have? Well, I think it's a lot, oh, you know, I, I, could, oh, I could talk for a long time. Um, I'll do it. <laughs> no, um, I think it's interesting to look back and see at other times that life destroyed life, which did happen. So famously, the great oxygenation event where all those silly anaerobic bacteria produce so much oxygen that the atmosphere filled with oxygen and they all died out. It was a disaster. And it's just like us. It's the same happened to the coal forests who drew down so much carbon that the world got cold and the coal forests collapsed. So you can view us like coal forests. We suddenly appear in vast numbers. We pump out uh, carbon dioxide. We relight the old coal forests. And so something will happen. Um, I think you described the effects of COVID. COVID, if we were a bunch of rats, say, looking at the rat population around the world, if they were hit by COVID, no one would notice. <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be counting the whatever it is, 0.01% of rats that died. Um, it's because we have constructed um, an enormously complicated structure, which is our society. 
Um, and that is actually very, very vulnerable. But what is so amazing about humans is that we are very much, as far as we know, the first creature on this planet who has actually looked and said, we know this is happening. And we did it so we can stop it. Um, we also know, looking ahead 100 years, that the human population will turn the corner and will stop growing. That, I think, is going to be a crisis because we have this, this, this kind of expansive um, system whereby everyone relies on growth all the time. That, the capitalist system where everything has to get bigger all the time is, is a bizarre one, but, and it's driven by people. So expanding population has allowed us that, that particular model to work. There will come a point when the markets shrink because there are less people and we'll need to adopt another system, which I'm sure will be fine, although there might be some birth pangs. So when the population starts to drop again, what happens? Well, we've already set in train uh, a certain increase in, um, in global temperatures. Nothing that the Earth hasn't seen before. I mean, the average temperature of the ocean at the moment is about 1%, I think it is, or something. It's pretty cold because of all that cold, deep water. Mm. The points in the Mesozoic, it was an average of 15 degrees. You know, the, the, the seas were warm. Um, and so life and the Earth will cope, whatever happens. But I think that it's just how, how we hold on to our society while we have to endure... Um, changes. Animals can, life can, and it comes back from it. We've invented this thing called society which reacts much more quickly, much faster, and throws up its arms and goes, oh god, we're all going to die, and has an existential angst and all these things. But as long as we can cope with that, there will always be a path through. Um, mm -hmm. And even if we do get a bit hotter, um, even if there are worse storms, we, we definitely have the technology to survive that. Um, and what we always hope is that the population will slowly deflate rather than catastrophically being hacked down by an even worse virus or something like that, um, yeah. which will be very tragic. Uh, you'd like things to happen slowly enough for everyone to slowly adapt. So if a city is going to flood, it doesn't do it overnight, like, um, uh, what was it, the American city that it lost to... Jack, was it Jacksonville? No, anyway. Um, you don't want it to happen with a flood overnight that kills everyone, but if the water slowly rises, people move out. That's happened before. Yeah. Ephesus was abandoned because it became malarial and flooded. So I think that yeah. uh, I, I'm optimistic about what happens next. Obviously, within the caveat that no species lasts forever. <laughs> something, yeah. something will come along. We can't last forever. But people have no concept of the length of time we talk about. I mean, you watch Walking with Dinosaurs, you hop on through millions of years, and it seems like no time at all, but a million years is a bloody long time. I mean, one thing I did, I did want to ask you too, I mean, you see these articles sometimes online, and you don't know whether to take them with a grain of salt or not, you know, how to take, how to take them seriously, but people sort of bringing back animals that are extinct. Oh, yeah. I don't know what the, t the term would be. But like, I mean, what's your opinion on that? Is it something that you think we... Is a good idea, first of all, whether it should be done or is it a good idea, I suppose. I think, what's it called? It's called Necro something. Yeah, I couldn't remember the time. No, it's, a, it, oh, yeah. it's a great, I think it's, uh, I mean, obviously the stuff that's said, 98% of it is shit. 
um, mm -hmm. because the DNA molecules are really difficult um, molecules to maintain. Um, I think there, but then there are parts of it that have been extraordinary. So the fact that we've uh, sequenced Neanderthals and Denisovians out of one tip of, su of someone's long dead finger, I think that shows that there, you know, that there is fascinating material to get out of DNA. But to actually create, recreate an embryo, you need an entire genome to be intact and undamaged. So clearly, I think that is never going to happen. So what they're talking about, though, is taking lengths of um, extinct uh, genome and adding them to um, existing similar animals. So the obvious one is the mammoth, and the elephant is quite closely related. And bless it, could bear a female elephant could bear the child. Um, and they they're working on that. Whether they'll succeed or not. I do not know. And there's all sorts of ethical questions about whether you should and that classic Jurassic world thing, it, that it's extinct for a reason and all that sort of stuff. I think it's, I think it's fascinating if it stimulates people and makes them interested. My, my feeling is that they will never really succeed. They did do it once already with some Spanish Ibex or something. The animal was dead. And they managed to, um, I think, get a, a related species pregnant, but the, the fetus didn't go to term or something went wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a fascinating area. And the genetic study of these creatures, just as Neanderthals and Denisovians have told, told us so much about ourselves, that I, I love the idea that the first thing that came out, of course, was clearly homo sapiens didn't go they weren't war they weren't warriors they were lovers <laughs> they didn't go in and beat up all the neanderthals they screwed their women <laughs> that's why we have so much neanderthal blood in us so uh, and of course the crossing over between the two so that our immune system is better because of the neanderthals but we also got depression from them which is a bit of a downer um so it's absolutely fascinating um yeah. And DNA in and of itself is like a, an archaeological plane to be dug up and investigated. Um, and I think a lot more interesting stuff will come out of that. But the kind of headline stuff, like let's remake the, the mammoth, is actually really quite peripheral, but mm -hmm. interesting nevertheless. Yeah, quite a while off Jurassic, a reality Jurassic Park then. <laughs> no, well, I, I remember there were lots of stories about that around Jurassic Park. And... Um, I think everyone was amazed and they continue to be amazed about what Amber can do because they're finding, unfortunately, the Bur there's a real black market in it and the Burmese are digging it up and flogging it all over the place. But just occasionally one gets to the scientists and it's got like this lovely bit of um, dinosaur feathered tail. It's, it's just a beautiful thing to have and look at, a little brown furry tail that's just literally frozen in time. But unfortunately, within those, the DNA will have just broken down of itself. It contains enzymes that automatically snip it up. So it's almost impossible to hold it together. Yeah. I don't know if you ever see, you know, we talk about articles and lots of it, you know, you say it's bullshit. But uh, I suppose you know, sometimes you get, and it's, it's, it annoys me, you do get people. It's, it's always the same fucking people that are flat earth and... Bill Gates wants to block out the sun, but they, some people try and claim that dinosaurs never existed. 
I don't know if you, you come across these kind I, of things. I, I, just after I made the show, I was in America. I played a round of golf with an ex, a guy from CIA. He was, yeah. uh, so he was really quite full of himself and he was quite smart as well, you know. And about halfway around, he kind of, he sort of leant over and said, look, you don't really believe in dinosaurs, do you? And I went, I'm sorry, what do you mean? He says, well, you know, they're just ridiculous. I mean, now aliens, I know there are aliens out there. <laughs> yeah. And it, so it just depends on how you grow up. In America, they love the idea of aliens. There are lots of people believe in aliens with no evidence whatsoever, but you can pile up all those fossils and they're going, no, no, I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I do find this, uh, the, the fake news or the, the growth of, I don't know what you call it, sort of like anti-science. I think, um, I think it's incredibly sad. And when you meet someone who thinks that, you, you realize what the barriers are because when you're talking to like-minded people, I don't know if you are, but talking to like-minded <laughs> Let's people. Let's assume so. <laughs> when you're talking to like-minded, you just chat away and you can't, you can't conceive of someone um, not believing the evidence or preferring to believe like the people who say, man, never landed on the moon or whatever. Mm-hmm. One, one little anomaly, the flag that flapped, and then ignoring everything else. Just, I think it's, um, it's, it's a, they called it in, uh, intellectual narcissism. I think that one of the functions of the internet is it provides everyone at their fingertips with so much information that they like to look into things themselves and find their own truth. And yeah. they don't, they don't, they're not willing, which is a good thing in many ways, to accept what the experts say. But unfortunately, if you haven't got the right tools, you dive into a deep, deep pond and you drown in the information and you end up clasping to a a life raft of bollocks. (laughs) And you then say, this is it. I found a truth. I I now know better than you um, about this particular subject. And it's not as if it's that new. Looking at anti-vaxxers, going right back to the beginning, there have always been anti-vaxxers. There's always been, despite the evidence, despite what vaccination has done for mankind, and despite, uh, this would be very interesting because at the moment it is happening exactly as the scientists say it would happen. How the anti-vaxxers will justify that at the end? You know, they there will be some reason why it was just because summer came at the right point the virus was exhausted. There'll be all sorts of reasons why it wasn't the vaccine. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't know what you do with that. You can't change people's minds if they don't want to have their minds changed. Yeah, I guess it's like that. We sort of live in a time where people can just, anyone can write anything and record anything on a video. And you can, I suppose, you know, it's, people can give the illusion of expertise, can't they? From not having, you know, just that, that vid, having a video, a YouTube channel, a social media account, or just on a website blogging, they can give the illusion that they're, they have the expertise to talk about it, but in reality, that isn't reality. Yes, I don't think anyone likes feeling they're ignorant. And if someone comes along and gives you a new truth, which uh, allows you not to have to study all that stuff, you can say, oh, I found that out, and therefore you can dismiss the experts. That's a quite empowering. Um, you don't feel like you're helpless in their hands. And um, I think that's very human. 
But I do know, I remember a woman I knew quite well who got breast cancer, but was into alternative health. And she was very passionate about it. And she decided that, she, you know, she would look into it and look at how she can treat herself. She didn't like the way the doctors talked to her or dealt with her. And I think it can be, especially in the past, uh, medicine has been quite de dehumanizing and unfeeling. So I had some sympathy, but of course she died of breast cancer. And towards the end, she desperately took chemotherapy and radiotherapy, but it was all too late. Um, and she might well have survived if she hadn't spent two years sticking nettle juice in herself and stuff like that. Um, so I, I think scientists by and large, the, the good communicators kind of recognize this and they try very hard to show humility and try and draw people into their argument. The frustration is, I think what the frustration with vaccination is that people who don't vaccinate themselves are protected by those who do. So there is a slightly um, irksome uh, aspect of vaccination where people who don't believe in it are going a long way to exploit other people. And I think when you look at the MMR one, which I was, I remember, because I was a medical journalist, I was on Horizon at the time or whatever, I was absolutely furious about it. I read the papers, I thought, what the fuck is going on here? This is, mm -hmm. this is all nonsense. And you got, I would sit at dinner parties, intelligent people I knew, and suddenly it was as if MMR was this poison that was going to kill their children. And I just couldn't be heard in conversations for a long time. And of course, when all the truth came out, um, you wanted the guy to be thrown into prison for what he did, but, mm -hmm. and you had measles, you know, measles outbreaks. It was as predicted. And, it, and there is nothing in the end more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Nothing justifies your argument more than objective truth. And you can't mm -hmm. deny it. And, it, and this, will, this is where that COVID, if it goes the way it seems to be going, will be a shining example of expertise, vaccination, and modern allopathic medicine. Um, of course, people won't believe it. People will come up with other explanations. Yeah, I mean, even, I mean, I was lucky enough to have my first jab last week just because I had some tutors and vulnerable, vulnerable people. Right. So I was, uh, you, you didn't know, know that old. I, I was going to say, I do well. Uh, but no I, no, I, no, I got offered it and I was a bit like, are you sure I'm offered it? I can be offered it. It's like, yeah, no, you know, you've, you've come under, you know, someone that can can be offered it. So if you're being offered it, I'll take it. So I was like, well, I won't argue with that. I'll, I'll go have it done. But, you know, obviously you, you hear, I had one friend where I sort of told my mates, I said, I'm going to go have my first jab. I had one mate that's so anti it that rang me and tried to convince me that if I have this jab that I'm not going to be able to have children because it's <laughs> uh, because it's a way to stop us um, over it's like an overpopulation technique oh, I to see. stop us having uh, right. that's another one you see well in most western countries the populations are falling so why should they bother <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I also these people frequently don't make the connection with traveling abroad when you get your tetanus jab your yellow fever all these things they they go and have those because They've been around forever. Um, but when it's MMR or, or when people start to discuss it, suddenly they adopt an anti-vaccination. But, you know, if you want to go to certain countries for your holidays, you have to have jabs. And I know people who have had those jabs 
and thought nothing of it because they want to go somewhere. You know, there's a big reward waiting for them. So suddenly their beliefs go out the window because they and, they, and and also they know lots of people have had them in the past. But I like I like the one about the microchips, you know, the idea that poor Bill Gates agenda. Bill Gates is sitting there trying, <laughs> and, and these are people who've got phones in their hands. He wants to track where I am when he turns through his phone already. Yeah. I'm quite flattered he wants to know when I'm at the club, actually. <laughs> it's true. I'm, I'm sanguine about it all. I, I like people who don't like cameras. You know, if you're not doing anything wrong, who gives a fuck? And, mm. and, and then along comes things like uh, Facebook and Instagram, where everyone plasters their personal lives. I, I know mm-hmm. a friend who works at GCHQ who laughs when you talk. everyone talks about how they're, they're tracking the nation and they're keeping an eye on everyone. He is swimming in an ocean of dross, which is everyone pouring their personal lives out. You know, you, mm. you can, finding it's too much information. Not It's not as if they're trying to squirrel out information. They're inundated with information, which people give away freely. Yeah. Well, on Facebook, you can do check-ins. Like, you can literally say, I am at this pub now with these two people. <laughs> you know, it, 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 and, that, and that's us wanted to share for whatever reason that we're at the pub. I think it's very at human, that specific actually. time. This is what these things are. They... they <laughs> That that whole that idea about the, the the single reason we've advanced is if you get a thousand people in a stadium, they'll all sit and watch the game. But you get a thousand chimps in a stadium, you know, it's scale. <laughs> we do organise together. We like the presence of humans around us, and we multi-connect. And technology has actually accelerated that even more. I mean, the process of acceleration in human races. If you're not thinking about our use of resources and the earth, if you're just th- looking at it as, a, as an achievement or an aspect of humanity, is scarily fast. Even in my lifetime, I started as a journalist with five bits of carbon paper and a, hitting a typewriter to try uh, write stories on this. And it was, you know, it was so primitive, but it had been that way for 150 years. Um, and then suddenly it's computers and then it's the internet and like, you know, this, which, you know, Zooming. Remember yeah. Star Trek? You, you know, they, they could do Zooms. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, did you ever see the, um, the, the film Back to the Future, obviously, when they said the year, what was it, 2020 or whatever, 2018, whatever, would be like this. And it's just so far off. Yeah. It's like, where did, where did we go wrong? That prediction's way off. <laughs> Some things uh, we never achieve or never will. And other things just zoom ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Not a hoverboard in sight. Yeah. No. <laughs> so anyway, that's I mean, a far, far cry from dinosaurs, though. Well, yeah. But what, what I did want to ask you about dinosaurs is the, the whole bone wars. You know, <laughs> I find that that fascinating well you know when that was all going on be- between um oh, i've got the names keep slipping my Open head now I've seen them. yeah yeah that's it and um oh, yeah that's the one yeah um but yeah were there mistakes made during that period with, with the bone wars and you know because they're obviously trying to one-up each other and you know evidence and stuff but like was there like you know mistakes made well i go back actually to paleo artists and it's mm. uh paleo artists paleo sculptors the artists who work with paleontologists to try and realize what they think they found is a fascinating and close relationship. And I think I'd love to make a program about it all, but I pitched it and no one wants it. Um, but I think it's it, it also, the paleo artists actually influences you and me. You know, it's their images that 
excite us and their images tell us what they were like. So you can look back through history and you can see general shifts in um, popular uh, perception. So the classic would be that if you go back to Charles Knight, who was um, turn of the century, his first uh, dinosaur things were really active. Uh, there's, there's two Leops, I think they're called, but they're jumping on each other. They're, they're exciting dinosaurs. But generally through the first part of the 20th century, this whole idea of technological advance meant that dinosaurs had to be less efficient. They had to be, um, uh, they were extinct, they were failures. So all the dinosaurs become heavier and kind of they're sitting in marshes and they're generally kind of slugging it out, eating each other and all that sort of stuff. It's all an awful world that thank goodness it's gone because things are so much better now. And then along comes Bakker uh, um, in, the, in the 60s and 70s and suddenly uh, dinosaurs are warm-blooded again. Suddenly they become more exciting. And then we realize they're feathered and they become more exotic. And the whole perception shifts. Um, uh, they look after their young, all these things. So were there mistakes? There are always mistakes. And sometimes they're written large, like the Crystal Palace ones, where, um, you know, there was that, that work, what was his name? Well, there were Owen's reconstructions and they, they got everything wrong about them because they had to be reptiles, therefore they had to look like a lizard and it was, it was all wrong. So in that respect, so paleontology will always be a guessing game. It's as much art as science. But when you get to the bone wars, what you've got is an extra layer of ambition and commercialism. And for years in the Natural History Museum, the, um, the most exciting um, skeleton was the Megatherium, was the giant sloth they had there. And that would attract massive crowds. But the moment the uh, your Rockefellers and everyone started funding digs, in the West to bring out these huge bones of dinosaurs. These things became, you know, megastars. And that's why the Natural History Museum was so pleased when they were donated a model of the Diplodocus uh, from America, which I think was Rockefeller, maybe one of the others, don't quote me on that. Um, because the audience wanted to see these gigantic things. And that of course puts pressure on the, um, on the scientists to deliver. And the prestige of owning, the university owning a great big um, dinosaur meant that they were literally fighting each other out there. And Copa Marsh was where I think everyone, their story is famous because right at the beginning, um, Cope, who the, the personalities were so different, Marsh, old established sort of Ivy League type, Cope, a younger, more upstart, energetic, loud, and Cope reconstructed this dinosaur and stuck the head on the wrong end. Um, and Marsh pointed that out and it was, there was no love lost between them the entire time. And you can't untie personality from the, the scientists, especially in the early days. There was a lot of jealousy in the first finds in the UK with Buckland and Owen and people like this. Um, and I'm sure things were 
lost, <laughs> things were stolen or changed or what have you. Um, we hear about how um, everyone is um, very complimentary about Mary Anning's con contribution at the time, but at the time women weren't meant to do that sort of stuff. And so they were sidelined and men were putting their names on. But that was just one example of uh, sort of ambition and humanity getting in the way of true science and the Piltdown Man being possibly the worst example where clearly scientists in, in the centre of the empire couldn't believe that mankind didn't start here. <laughs> so they invent a jaw or a really, really bad um, fake and everyone kind of goes, oh, phew, we knew it all along. Man started here and they, they just wanted to believe it. And they ignored the fact it was an appalling fake and it was on display for a long, long time. Um, so, yes, I mean, personality, commercial interests, ambitions all get in the way. But I think what happens over 100 and what is it now? So 1841, dinosaur was invented. So since then, there's been a sort of cumulative understanding. So... You, there are some things that are fairly well established and you just build on that. And so you get all the arguments on the periphery and sometimes it seems like no one agrees with anyone, but actually they all accept timelines. They all accept most reconstructions. You know, it's a, there's a lot of agreement and, there, and therefore you can call these truths even though a friend of mine pointed out, you know, they'll never get up and sing for you. So you'll never know that they didn't do that. They could have all been talking to each other for all we know. Um, but yeah, I think that, I think it's a lot of solid science there now. Yeah. yeah it's, it's so interesting. It, it, it fascinates me that people that kind of want to overlook dinosaurs, but like you say, want to uh, obsessed with finding aliens or, you know, yeah. like one friend that, you know, wants to find Bigfoot, you know, the Bigfoot documentaries and gets invested in that. I'd love there to be a Bigfoot. It's great, but there's, there's no, no evidence there, I'm afraid. What do, I mean, do, what do you think people that, you know, you see these American documentaries sometimes that claim that there's been a Bigfoot that they've seen and stuff, do you think it's all just bullshit or they've seen something that's, you know, a bear, I suppose? I, I, I can't answer whether they saw something, which is probably a bear, as you say. Um, yeah. I Having worked in science programming since, uh, you know, since the late 80s. Um, cryptozoology is, is such a, um, uh, an evocative and, uh, and attractive subject, but absolutely universally, when someone pitched you an idea saying, we're going on a hunt for the Yeti and we will find evidence, we know you can absolutely, you, you know it won't happen. I mean, there've been some interesting examples. I remember looking for big cats, which uh, it was a QED, and they did find right at the end that uh, wild cats and domestic cats in Scotland had crossbred and produced a big black cat. Well, when I say big, you, it's just a big moggy, you know, sort of thing. Yeah. At least they found, at least it had an ending. There was another one where they went to, um, they went and found some hair in the Himalayas and, and they sent it off to the DNA lab to establish what, and complete cheats, of course, the end of the program came and they haven't had the results yet, but we expect it will turn out to be a bear. So, uh, <laughs> I don't know, people like mystery, they like mystery in the earth, and they, I think some of the times they're chasing Loch Ness or whatever, they don't want there to be an answer. They just want to be a litter of clues which keeps you running 
they liked the journey of the mystery. And if it was solved, if they found out there was giant sturgeon living in Loch Ness or whatever, I think they'd all be a bit disappointed. Um, I, I shot a, a, I made a drama series for ITV called The Loch, which was shot all around Loch Ness, um, where we cleverly had a serial killer up there because he was the real monster of Loch Ness. <laughs> but shooting up there, I mean, you only have to stand there and you go, this is all a load of bollocks, you know. Yeah. Their, their biggest tourist industry is Chinese coming up in their coach loads in the summer to go around Loch Ness. And none of the locals, all the locals think this is a load of nonsense. Um, and when people come there, invariably they go back going, oh, well, it was fun, but it's very pretty, but there's no, <laughs> clearly no monster. But it's, it perpetuates. Uh, a Russian told me once, I only know two things about your country. You have a queen and the Loch Ness monster, <laughs> which is a bit sad. But um, uh, yeah, I think people just love the idea that it could be there, but they don't want to find the answer. No. Well, Tim, it's been amazing talking to you um, this afternoon. I mean, how, how do you think we should, as humanity, we need to emerge from COVID? I think a lot of things are forced upon us. I think all this is, is a big change in working practices, which I don't underestimate. For people's day-to-day -day living, these things are, um, are really big. Um, I think if it's... There's a very interesting thing going on at the moment about people living in cities or not living in cities. There's an astonishing move into cities at the moment. Um, but it, it is challenging to live in a city, although it is a human designed area and I think environmentally it's probably quite sensible if people lived in cities um, but this might be a, a reverse push to that you might actually get a spreading out of people a little bit um, I don't think that humans will learn that much about themselves from this I think it's good we'll be prepared for the next one a lot better but I think most people will move on and the figures tragic though they are won't be catastrophic enough to persuade people to change their lives forever. I think they will expect technology to save us next time and be more prepared. Mm. Um, so I think like a lot of things that seem enormous when you're there, the lens of time quickly, they're in your rear view mirror and you're moving on. That's what we do. And that's actually what life does as well. Life, life is uh, it's a constant process of change. And that's why when people hark back to a paradise when everything was perfect and simple and, and um, the same every day, it's just simply not true. There was always another dreadful thing that presented itself. We're going to get an asteroid at some point. We're going to get a big old volcano at some point. And I can imagine, can you imagine the news if some huge volcano goes off? Um, you know, it'll just go on and on and on. What the volcano is yeah. doing today? <laughs> How you, you, we advise you don't go out today and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Basically, yeah, the, the Sky News has been <laughs> yeah. So so I, I've had to stop watching to be honest the news. Uh, but anyway, Tim, it's been amazing talking to you today. I look forward to seeing more of your programs on in the future. I can't wait. Oh well, we'll see. It's whether they want to they, they want to pay enough to make them. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. All right, well, Cheers, thank you for, for asking anyway. I hope it was what you needed.
yeah, big thanks to Tim there. What an interesting episode. I learned so much talking to Tim and uh, can't wait to see, you know, future programs and future, um, you know, work that he's involved in. Um, yeah, just one of those guys that when he talks, you listen, right? Just it's fascinating that someone has so much knowledge <laughs> on, on such things. Um, but yeah, guys, really great talk with Tim. Thank you for listening. Be sure to check us out on our social media pages at Shapes of Stories on Twitter. On Instagram, you can follow us on, well, follow me on Prestige Books. And you can follow us on our Facebook pages as well, The Shapes of Stories and Lawrence Prestige. Um, yeah, so guys, thanks for tuning in. Um, if you know, if you can donate um, any money to us in any way, that's always helpful. I really hate asking for money, but um, it's always useful if you can. You know, we're in tough times. I know right now, but um, you know, if you guys uh, want more content, it'd be really handy. Cheers, guys! All the best. <laughs> <laughs>